Welcome to the Thurston Knowledge Podcast. Uh, as usual, it's me, Lawrence. Unfortunately, Steve couldn't join me this week due to technical difficulties, so I'm going to do uh, more of a solo podcast sort of thing, and we'll see how this ends up panning out. So I sort of pulled some questions together from people, and we'll probably just go on tangents about different things here and there. So, uh, I actually didn't really pay attention to Magic this last weekend, which is odd considering it's Worlds, which is the tournament that got me into Magic, and I don't know, I just have found myself less interested in watching Magic tournaments as of late, which usually, even when, like, the, the format doesn't specifically interest me, I'll watch for, you know, mostly to appreciate the uh, higher level of competitive play, but I found myself only really watching the finals of this tournament, and even then, I wasn't really paying the most attention to it. Uh, Lately, I've been pretty uninterested in uh, the... I've been pretty uninterested in magic commentary. I think in some ways it's gotten fairly formulaic. The play-by-play slash color commentary thing is like a tried-and-true system, but I, th- at least for me, it gets a little redundant after a while, uh, so I've been mostly muting commentary and watching the stream while listening to the audio of like a podcast or something, which this isn't to say that I think that the folks in commentary are doing a bad job. I do have criticisms, uh, but none of them are, like, major things. I'm not quite sure what can be done to make commentary an objectively better product. Personally, I've found that I really like when pro players are doing commentary. So, um, LSV, uh, Paul Rietzel, Huey, Jensen all come to mind as players who have done commentary within the last few years and have really knocked it out of the park. I find their insight super interesting, uh, given that they usually point out lines that the the general commentators don't notice or the way they break down and communicate the game uh, is really interesting to me. Uh, And it's nice to see that even... Once someone hits that level of um, mastery or expertise or what have you, they are still able to, you know, communicate effectively, which seems to be somewhat of a dying art in magic, uh, which I'll touch on in a bit. Um, but yeah, Worlds was interesting. Congrats to Paulo Vitor Damodarosa who I'm not sure why the best player of all time discussion is still going, given that uh, Kai Paulo and uh, John Finkel have all had accomplishments that you could say that they are the best. And it seems like people's answers to the question comes down to 
a mix of recency bias and um, personal preference, I guess. So it's it's whatever. Paulo's one of the best players to ever live. Also, I think that once you get to a certain point in the game of being that good, uh, it's like once you compare the three, it's arguable that the differences in how good they are are fairly negligible, right? Like you don't really need to compare them and they all just are the greatest for more or less. Um, I don't know if there's any other tournaments coming up. I I guess the next pro tour is in a few months. Uh, Yeah, I, I don't know. I will say that I am an old man and I do miss when worlds consisted of multiple formats uh like there was one year where where um cube draft was a world's format which was weird i guess i don't it was interesting to watch i don't know if it's something that i'd like to see repeated necessarily but it was interesting uh i always found the whole like mastery of multiple formats associated with worlds to be a very nice um factor in terms of just like not only hitting on the interests of multiple audiences but there's also something nice to be said about like hey this person's the world champion they were the best person in the room at insert all of these formats i i do think it is in a way nice that uh narrowing it down to what was i i believe it was just standard and draft Uh, i don't know if there's a pioneer portion but i think limiting down the formats does make preparation a bit more streamlined for the players. Uh, and I do think there's a beauty in them being able to just focus in on these formats. Also, being able to portray worlds on uh, Magic Arena is probably a huge upside for Watsi in terms of branding and uh, just being able to make the game a bit more accessible to larger audiences um but i don't know i whatever i'm old i'm reminiscing about the good old days but you know maybe maybe this is the future uh we'll see um i don't i like i said i think showcasing more formats makes worlds a more dynamic viewing experience but there's pros and cons to that um let us see what else I have on the docket here. Oh, uh, I saw a lot of people dunking on Marcio for that keep in the finals. And um, for those who don't know, he kept a hand of like two blue sources, a three drop to Faria, uh, a Legion war boss. And he basically kept like two lands, a bunch of cards he couldn't cast, but were powerful enough to win him the game if he draws the lands. I think I've, I've heard different reports on the math uh, regarding how likely he was to actually um hit the colors of mana or like the color of mana that he needed because he was looking specifically for a red source to resolve turn three legion war boss but it was i've heard 40 something i've heard in the 50s like higher 50s uh but regardless i think that uh a lot of the criticism of him on this is largely unwarranted and it's very clear that mental fatigue was taking a big effect on him or having a big effect on him and 
I also think there's something to be said about maybe not criticizing people who are significantly um, better than you. Uh, I th- it's very easy to backseat quarterback uh, matches and accost people for a singular mistake, but then you have to look at their track record compared to your own and maybe just uh, chill on on all that, you know, you know, bow down or whatever, stay in your lane. There are multiple, multiple ways of uh, communicating that point. So yeah, magic is hard. Long tournaments are hard. Uh, people are who weren't as mentally strained were discussing this hand, and it's like you know, um, just move on with your life really all i'm seeing there uh let's see what else is on the docket oh people wanted me to talk about magic twitter and uh why i hate it um so i think magic as a game i think it's ironic that magic as a game uh is one that you know thrives upon players ability to think critically at least in the competitive sense of the game and magic Twitter has created an environment where you're heavily incentivized to be as hyperbolic as possible, which I think is a net negative for actual um, coherent conversation and getting anything fruitful. I've kind of just seen a lot of people rapid fire off hot takes and, you know, doing this knowing that anything or like you know uh firing off predictions as fast as possible so that they can like bring them back up down the road is like a clout thing and knowing that like you know if you fire off 11 takes and 10 of them are complete whiffs but one of them hits people are only gonna care about the one that hit um and i hate that with a passion uh i don't I think it's terrible for discourse, and I think it uh, leads to a decent amount of false information being... Um, I don't know what else I hate about that. Just spamming the hell out of memes that aren't funny, or just, like, not knowing when to let things die, I guess. Um, but I guess on, like, a more heavier side of things, I've seen a lot more topics around, like, social justice causes, which I think are reasonable to bring up. But the way they're being brought up uh, is in a very accusatory way of, like, I think this, if you don't think this, then you're insert some negative label, which naturally causes people to be extremely defensive. Uh, And at that point, you completely lose the ability to have any sort of, you know, uh, fruitful discourse. So, yeah, maybe people should, you know, hopefully consider bringing up topics of interest or importance in ways that uh, are more likely to garner a response that's relatively, like, not necessarily positive, but not, like, don't put people in a situation where their ego is naturally going to want to defend itself and toss themselves into like a 
you know, a very, not a fight or flight. I, I don't know. I'm losing track of the words here. Um, I think there's like a self-fulfilling prophecy here of just like aggressively making a statement about something that people are, even if they care about it, they may not like address in a way that would actually make any difference. And then we end up awkwardly sitting around or just yelling at each other. So yeah, here we go. Um, what do we have here? So a bunch of people asked me about, um, legacy breach, how I feel about it in terms of format health, uh, and things that, Oh, I forgot. Uh, Matt Sperling asked me to discuss the types of accounts that make me or social media users that make me want to delete my account. Um, I don't think there's, I don't ever really want to delete my account. I actually like Twitter, uh, but I aggressively curate my Twitter feed and um, mute the living hell out of anyone who uh, even mildly annoys me. At one point, I was muting anyone who tweet started a tweet with hot take. So maybe, maybe that's the answer. Just people who seem to like constantly uh tweet non like their tweets aren't funny they usually lead to deconstructive discourse etc so um which i guess you could just say are like dumb people so there's that anywho where was i uh breach so Breach is an interesting one, and maybe I'll wrap that into another topic of uh, that Jarvis U brought up of um, Astrolabe causing homogeny. I I see formats as ecosystems, and kind of need to look at how one deck affects the other. Um, so, for example, Breach is this go-to combo deck for everyone due to you know, it basically being TS that more or less gets to play um, counter spells. It's it can go off from a very low resource base and it just has an explosive combo, a couple win cons, and uh, interestingly enough, it gets to play main deck answers for some of the cards that combo shells tend to have issues with. Um, you know, seal of cleansing. I've seen seal of removal to go along with the um enlightened tutor package i I think there's a lot that you can do with the deck in terms of how to build it and then of course there's the monastery mentor sideboard game plan or we're seeing three drop to fairy being utilized as uh an option for defense grid or replaceable defense grid but some lists also just run defense grid being tutor for it um when i see a combo deck dominating in legacy the first thing I really ask myself is like, why can't the fair decks stop this or what's going on with the fair decks that they are falling prey to this? And then I ask myself like, you know, is this deck truly busted? So with Breach, um, I think the deck is powerful, but I don't know if it's quite busted. I, I think that at the current moment, players are somewhat disincentivized to pick up the blue 
you know, controly decks to some degree. It seems like Snowco and other shells are other similar decks are doing well enough, which plays into the homogeny that Astrolabe causes. Uh, we've touched on this a bit on the podcast with how when you have a card like Deathrite Shaman, um, Astrolabe, etc., uh, anything that makes the color pie fairly arbitrary and allows these blue decks to just play more or less any effect they want you end up in a position where initially there will be some deck diversity amongst these shells because player bias and people still trying to figure out what's good but eventually that will boil down into people realizing which four colors are the best four to play and just playing the deck that facilitates the those four and that is what i'm seeing with uh snowco being the primary four color deck it seems like strifopile is showing up a bit um but each deck has its pros and cons um I'm not surprised to see the five-color Astrolabe deck not really be a factor in the format because um, the deck is like really awkwardly weak to Wasteland shells at times or enough to be a concern. And with a format like Legacy, or not format like Legacy, but with Legacy, Wasteland rarely is just not like it's rare that Raceland completely falls out of the format. People are always going to be playing Delver. There's you know maybe going to be uh, lands. We've seen Agrolome, stay consistent, Death and Taxes, Style Shells, etc. These decks are just mainstays by nature of player uh, preference and uh, just certain ideologies. Like Delver is a pretty strong fifty-fifty deck, so. Uh, it's uncommon that it will ever completely be pushed out of the format uh, unless something really happens, right? Um, in terms of Wasteland getting pushed out, the only time I can think of in my period of playing Legacy that that has happened was when Treasure Cruise was a thing and the like top decks of the format were... Uh, Blue Red Delver, Miracles, and Omni Show, which were all these like basic land heavy decks that utilized um, the Delve card. So, Wastelanding someone didn't necessarily cut their potential mana for a turn uh, and kept it at a net neutral while you fell behind. So, we saw Delver shells cutting wasteland and just go becoming more aggressive and the like. It, you know, it all just doesn't really matter in that regard. Um, anyway, where was I before I went on that ramble about Delver and wasteland? Oh, I was talking about the five color deck and how wasteland basically existing limits how powerful that deck can become in the format. Whereas the other Oko decks, or the Snoko deck, um, and Breach, etc., because they can play Wasteland, they can invalidate that angle of attack for the most part, which gives them an upside there. The Snoko decks I'm seeing, uh, it appears that... Oh, 
Maybe I'm wrong. I was going to start gloating about how people were cutting Ice Fang Quaddle because it makes your mana really terrible. And I was going to, like, say we here at the Thirst for Knowledge podcast are really big smart boys. But um, apparently people are still playing Ice Fang Quaddle, which is fine. But I do think it really does come at a cost in terms of your mana base. So I think um, that opens the deck up to some variance and leaning that hard on Astrolabe is potentially uh, a liability, but it does look like Worst uh, did well in the most recent Legacy Challenge with the good old No Snake uh, Snoko deck. So maybe we're out here. Um, Which, speaking of which, RIP to everyone who signed up for the... Um, legacy challenge and had to sit for quite some time due to some issues uh, that I saw with something about the pairing system. There are players just sitting for hours in between rounds four and five, I believe. Um, So I don't know how relevant the data is from this tournament. It's in a way somewhat a matter of, you know, who is willing to wait that long um you know just leave moto running and come back to it later uh but hey congrats to the winner and all that just uh sounded like a hellish experience so y'all are troopers uh keep it going i guess (laughs) um so where was i okay Actually, causing homogeny. Um, yeah, like I said, colors start to become arbitrary, and deck building devolves into just picking the four best colors that cover all of your bases, and that's what Astrolabe is doing to, or has done to Legacy for a while, and that's what Deathrite Shaman did. Um, the difference is that Astrolabe promotes basic lands, and I, I guess more mid-rangey deck building, whereas Deathrite Shaman was more ubiquitous amongst... Or, well, it could be utilized from anything from Delver to a more controlling-style deck. We saw, like, way back in the day, like, Bug Control that was just, like, Deathrite Shaman, Baleful Strix's true name. And then we started seeing, like, Leovolds, and, you know, we saw Shardless Bug, etc. And then eventually we had Grixis Delver dominate at the end. Uh... I personally still think that Astrolabe should go mostly just as a preservation of the color pie as a concept. I think that deck building uh, and the just formats in general get more interesting uh, when constraints are put on the player base. So, you know, force people to play two to three colors. I think being able to play four colors without having a limiting factor of like Wasteland, Back to Basics, Blood Moon, uh, really... It really um, creates an environment that isn't too interesting to play within, right? Like, a lot of your games are going to be the same. A lot of the costs of playing these greedy mana bases or or that traditionally were there aren't. So you end up in a position where you're kind of just in the blue soup arms race, which... Some people like those sorts of metagames because they like these blue mares, but I find them um, pretty 
terrible, even though I, I do like said blue mirrors, but the, the frequency of which they pop up is truly uninteresting. Um, I also think that well-tuned control decks and legacy, uh, or they start to approach mid-range shells or when control decks can be proactive with enough effects to, you know, impede the opponent. Uh, we, we end up with some disgusting powerhouses. Um, you know, it, it's all interesting for a short period of time and then it gets obnoxious. Um, like, I'm fine with things changing in Legacy for periods of time, but I also do like when course correction happened. Uh, people called out that Breach was busted as a card and probably would get banned. I'm fine with that statement, but I'm also fine just letting people have fun with Breach uh, up until that may happen, right? Um, just having the same constant Legacy is it's just as uninteresting and I find the format uh, is a little I, I like the format in a slight state of flux where there's enough room to innovate but there you don't feel completely dumb for not playing X, Y, or Z deck um, maybe that's not even true now I, I actually prefer Legacy when there's just like a very clear best deck um, Death Rate Shaman Legacy top Legacy or Delve, Grixis Delver Legacy and Top Legacy I found very enjoyable because um, it gives players a set of constraints to work within. And uh, you know exactly what you have to be able to address. And then from there you can just run wild and players do that. But it seems like we have a pretty decent amount of brewing and idea creation going on. So that is cool. <laughs> But in terms of uh, Breach's dominance, it, you know, having your having a forceful deck, it's it's like show and tell. It's just show and tell, but cheaper. So when your show and tell deck doesn't necessarily fall prey to the same, like easy to jam and hate, um, and can cleanly play and tutor for answers for the effects people are utilizing against it, it isn't a shock that it does well. But one thing I'm curious about is uh, whether or not Veil of Summer pushing out like the black base combo decks and kind of invalidating Thoughtseize a bit um, is having an effect on how good the Breach decks are. I'd be I'm kind of curious to see how well these Breach decks stand up against uh, Ant or like the discard heavy versions of TES pre them playing Veil because I feel like the Breach shells while powerful um, are very frail to discard effects because they do have that A plus B nature of show and tell um, of course you know Breach itself being a four of playable um, past in flames effect is notable but when the other combo decks can play the game plan of like thought sees you you you're dead uh that you know i think that pushes forces the breach deck to evolve right um anyone who's followed cyrus during any period where he has been playing a lot of legacy has seen his screen caps where 
his opponent's hand is, um, you know, six counter spells, five counter spells, and a surgical, or you know, just a stack of disruption and the classic. Well, how do I lose from here? And then the follow up is Cyrus pointing out how he won. I think that the breach deck uh, is in a similar spot against like other discard based combos. Uh, in the early games, you may have the potential for the combo decks being forced to ignore counter magic in uh, lieu of taking a combo piece. But I do think that um, against the faster combo decks, the force of will, like no discard, lower disruption combo deck tends to struggle, right? So... I think kind of the ecosystem of legacy is awkwardly pushing a form of disruption a bit out of the format. Um, and like, maybe I should clarify Grix, Delver, Bug Delver, et cetera, still exists, right? So there, there are discard shells, but they aren't very, they aren't blisteringly fast discard shells. And the combo decks have been disincentivized from playing a slightly slower discard-based game plan and leaning in much harder on um, just brutally murdering your opponent before they can get any footing in the game. And I think if we maybe level that field or normalize it a bit, uh, we could see Breach be less of, you know, this dominant factor, I think. Um... Hopefully that was coherent enough. Anywho, what else do I have here? Fishduggery asked, ranked way to represent elf's tokens, or best ways to represent Oko tokens uh, ranked. Um, number one is chunks of elk steak placed directly on top of the cards. Um, the next best way are individual uh, Polaroid photos of elks to place over the cards. Um, what would be next on that list? Printouts of every terrible Magic the Gathering Twitter joke about Oko, uh, or just every tweet that has that just simply says elk or something to that effect. You get what I'm saying. From there, uh, I like Brian Koval's idea of having little like elk or deer toys or whatever. Um, you know, just putting those on the card, and then I guess you can like fiddle with awkward tokens or whatever. RK Post has uh, some nice framing tokens for elks, so that I like those. Um, but I think dead animal flesh is by far uh, the top of my list, and from there, various shenanigans. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's where I sit on that. Kernovac um, asked, or stated, slash asked, the other day someone asked if deck X was a meta deck or format pillar. I only thought of decks uh, in terms of tiers. Uh, maybe have some sort of discussion about useful or useless magic lingo as it relates to eternal formats. So I think in general, looking at decks and in tiers isn't 
like the idea of tier one, tier two, etc. I, I find when people arbitrate throw those terms out, it, they don't really lead anywhere because uh, the concept of like tiers are very loosely defined for most players. They're just reiterating terminology. Um, regarding legacy as a format, uh, for a long portion of the format's history, there's been like the best two or three decks and then everything else is still reasonably playable as long as you put in or do your homework, right? So even when you had like miracles being dominant, you could still do well with other deck shells uh, based on player competency. Um, so yeah, I think like I've done tier lists for legacy or done like state of legacy addresses and I've, put things within tier lists mostly as the most easily communicable way of like where I think decks sit or how good they are partially because people are currently pre-programmed to think of decks within the like mindset or framework of uh, tiers. So I just use that as a tool of communication and less a matter of me actually thinking uh, that like the terms tier one or tier two mean, uh, an extreme or, or being of extreme importance, right? So, like arguably anything that you'd put in between, like tier zero and tier two, in more, most uh states of legacy are reasonably playable, and then uh, the rest of the format is like decks you shouldn't play, but people do. Um, what else is there? Uh, magic lingo specifically that's useful or useless is, uh, oh, strictly better or worse. I hate that term, uh, or those terms. Um, cards are often contextually better or worse. It's like rarely is one card just an objectively better option. Um, you may look at, for example, storm decks playing extirpate and going, why are they playing Extirpate as opposed to Surgical Extraction? One of these cards is free, you know, um, blah, blah, blah. Or you may look at something like uh, Tormod's Crypt and go, why aren't people playing uh, Nile Spellbomb? So with a deck like Miracles or some other uh, Delver, when you play like a Surgical Extraction effect, you're specifically playing those because they're free disruption um, and you want to like remove certain things from the opponent's deck um, and mana being a bottle is often a bottleneck against other comp or the combo shells because their critical turns happen in the early game so like you know not paying mana for this sort of disruption is um, very powerful uh, the same applies to um Tormod script compared to Nile Spellbomb. Um, additionally, with these blue-based decks, right, um, you, because cantrips exist, you have a much wider range of keepable hands that you can just uh, throw out, or, you know, look at and go, yeah, sure. So, for example, if you're playing a deck like um, Death and Taxes or Maverick, 
you may be inclined to play a card like Leyline of the Void or Rest in Peace or like these are the effects that you're leaning towards for Graveyard Hate um, or even like Goblins. Um, I think Goblins should play Leyline of the Void because the keepable hands you have against something like Black Red Reanimator uh, are mostly going to involve anything with Graveyard Hate, right? Uh, or even like Dredge. You want, like, your odds of winning a game where you don't just have turn zero Leyline fairly low. But if you're playing a deck like Delver or Miracles or some other fair blue deck, if you have an opening hand that's like maybe some soft permission or something, like a card like Spell Pierce or Days is good against Dredge, for example, um, and some number of cantrips, you don't. Like, you have enough disruption to survive the early turns and utilize your cantrips to find your graveyard hate. So, like a deck like Goblin's Maverick, when Death and Taxes, when you only have two to four of these effects, uh, your range of keepable hands, very narrow, right? Whereas when you're playing one of these blue decks and you have four Force of Wills, maybe some number of days, maybe some number of Spell Pairs slash Fluster Storm, uh, Force of Negation, um, and then you start factoring in like cantrips and cards like Surgical, then you're looking at like maybe an upwards of um, nine plus-ish zero mana ways to interact with your opponent on turn one along with cantrips that increase your range. So on the play, you may not have a forcible hand. Uh, nine plus is like the base for non-days decks. If you have days, obviously it's more. Um, but like cantrips allow you to see extra cards. So uh, you get to just abuse your deck building a bit and get to leverage things that way. So... If you look at a deck and you'll see something like Daniel Golshul opt to play Tormod's Crypt, and or you'll see like I'll commonly build my sideboards with like two surgical and a Grafter's Creeds or two surgical and a Tormod's Crypt, and the reason for that is um, it's a matter of power versus efficiency. So in most cases, the first two surgicals are going to be effects that I'm going to utilize more frequently than the first Tormod's Crypt or Grafdigger's Cage. Again, this is most form most states of the format. There are times where double Tormod or double Grafdigger's Cage when surgical is favorable. This was like when Renin Six was legal. But I digress. Um when you look at these effects and you go, okay, so I'm caring about cards like Punishing Fire, or people reanimating Grizzlebrand, uh removing life from the loam or whatever. Um in effect, like surgical extraction, the first two copies are going to be higher value. But then, say you want to devote three sideboard slots to Grave Hate, then you start looking at the third copy of Surgical, and you realize, okay, well, that copy of Surgical is only going to be good specifically against like lands or Black Red Reanimator or Dredge. Um, and even then, you may not have the room to board it in against something like lands. But when you start branching out and looking at your other graveyard hate effects, uh, Tormod's Cage, Tormod's Cage, <laughs> um, Grafdigger's Cage is a card that can be potentially utilized against Green Sun Xena shells. Um, 
it can be utilized against decks with Emery, Lurker of the Lock. Uh, it technically can be used against Snapcaster decks, but that's generally not a good enough exchange there. Um, but you get my point. It does a similar effect, but it's just different enough that you want that variety. Tormod's Crypt, uh, much like Surgical, has the ability that you can turn one, keep a handful of cantrips, cantrip with Tormod's Crypt, and then put it on the table, which allows you to protect it from uh, an effect like uh, Unmask or Thoughtseize, right? Or if your opponent goes turn one reveal Chancellor, you can play your land, play your Tormod's Crypt, and pass, and that's going to uh, break the Chancellor trigger and buy you some time. So, is or and to explain extirpate, um, the storm decks would very commonly use extirpate to, uh, at, like as a counter effect for Snapcaster Mage out of Miracles, where they'd cast like a Thoughtseize or whatever, take Fluster Storm the next turn or that turn maybe set up a line where the opponent goes for the Snapcaster Fluster Storm, and then you extirpate. Uh, the fluster storms and functionally utilize that as a counter spell. So, all of these cards serve very similar but different effects, um, and each one has a situation that is better. And you you need to be able to suss out what your deck is looking to do and how your deck interacts with the opposing deck so that you can properly choose your cards to best facilitate your game plan. So, uh, the reason I find Strictly Better to be a terrible term is because people will conflate a card being played more frequently to being better. And that's where we get like the... Surgical versus Stormont's Crypt versus um, Grafdigger's Cage, etc. It's like, Surgical, the most played card? Yes. Is it objectively better than any of these other cards? No. Uh, does it best fit the game plan that a very high number of decks have um, or, like, want to utilize? For the most part, right? So... You have to kind of factor out frequency bias when evaluating cards. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's some generally useless terminology. There are times where a card is, like, actually strictly better. Um, like Lightning Strike and Incinerate are the same card, but Incinerate has the this creature... Or the creature can't be regenerated clause, which... I don't think there are any cards in Magic that punish that, so you can argue that Incinerate is a strictly better card. But it, most of the time, that uh, that term is used. Generally, it falls short in terms of uh, actually being utilized in an intelligent way that isn't just someone trying to come off as an authority figure or being completely dismissive for whatever reason. What else do we got here? Odoras Arungus said, or wanted me to touch on playing one deck versus being flexible. I think having a range in magic is good. 
Um, and this actually plays into one of Dylan Hovey's questions of, can you remember a point where you learned something and broke through in quotes? A lot of times I've had like level up moments for when I force myself to branch out in magic and try different decks. It just forces you to like look at the game through a different lens and it's very easy to play a one deck or play a certain type of deck and get a very skewed perception of the game and how cards interact and how they function. And this can affect your ability to evaluate cards um, because you don't necessarily understand how things work within context. So you have an effect like Lightning Bolt, which is like a generally a snap for of in a Delver shell, but you may be building a control deck and only want one to two copies. And if you don't play either of those style, or if you only play one of those decks, uh, you could get a skewed idea of like the range of the card lightning bolt and its usage and why a deck may want to play it, which would ultimately be detrimental to you or anyone that you uh, consistently test with because you may provide feedback that isn't the best. So having some sort of range helps there. Uh, in Legacy and Eternal formats, you'll see people lean in heavily on one archetype. There we, you know, if you think of a deck, you can probably think of a player that you naturally associate with that deck. But even when you look at someone like Rodrigo Tagoras or Bryant Cook uh, or even Cyrus, people who are known for playing these Storm decks, um, they're all competent players as a generality like they their fundamentals are strong enough that they can pick up and play other decks bryant has played miracles within the legacy premier league and has shown that he's you know competent with the deck tagoras has done well with depths and um five color control Cyrus uh, is also like a very skilled Delver pilot. Uh, even when you look at someone like Bob Huang or Jarvis Yu, like they're known for Delver and lands uh, respectively, but Jarvis's range is wide enough that he can pick up most decks in the format and play them competently. And then he's like better with um, a certain subset of decks or like Bob known for playing Delver but he will play like depths or uh, has picked up a few other shells uh, as he feels they're good enough in the format, something like Agrolome. So actively being able to, I'm, I'm not saying that players need to be able to pilot every deck in a format competently, but it is good to put in enough reps with a deck, even just like playtesting sessions to understand how it functions and that'll ultimately help you uh, get a better idea of how to combat that deck when you're playing against it for one but having some number of fallback decks that you can play when the metagame gets hostile towards your preferred deck shell um, so yeah play if you only want to play one deck that's totally fine um, I know some people who basically just have their deck that they play because that is how they find playing magic enjoyable. And that is totally acceptable. If you want to be more on the competitive side of things, uh, you should definitely develop a range because it'll force you to 
push yourself ultimately, which will be beneficial in the long run. Eternal Casual asked how or asked about the best ways to get into magic online in today's age and how to use it uh, effectively as a learning tool. Uh, rental services or bumming cards off of people are the best ways to get into magic online. Um, the I get both of these require either money or well, one requires money, one requires uh, having a big enough social sphere to get in with people. So they each have their own barriers. There isn't necessarily an easy. Uh, in terms of using magic as an effective learning tool, I was actually recently talking to James Sue about this. Uh, I think that magic not actually the best tool for getting better, or magic online, not necessarily the best tool for getting better at magic. And if you aren't careful, can fall into falls or get trapped uh, within ideologies that ultimately will hinder your ability to grow as a player. Um, for one, it's very common for people to put a lot of emphasis on getting five O's or, or like having a certain win rate in leagues. People will like flex their ELO or what have you. Uh, if you want to get better, you shouldn't focus on the results necessarily. You should go into a league with the intent to learn. Maybe you want to try out X, Y, and Z cards and see how they function. And you go into the league, you play your league, and you come out with, these cards were good, these cards were bad. Uh, when I was playing more actively last year uh, and playing a bunch of Rug Delve or whatever, I would routinely just try out various cards uh, in certain spots to see how they would function. And uh, that's a good thing. Um, the issue I have with Magic Online is that um, the financial aspect of it incentivizes players to just keep doing what's working. So that leads to a few things. Uh, it leads to a skewed perception of their results. So like if you 5-0 a couple times with a deck, you may go, oh, this deck is hot fire. But like 5-0s are just an arbitrary benchmark and they don't ultimately mean that much. Uh, one thing I like to quote or cite when pointing this out is um, Kevin Jones had won multiple Star City Games Opens and a GP before he 5-0'd a Moto League. Like, whether or not you 5-0 leagues isn't an indicator of your capabilities as a player. Uh, and yes, it's like a feel-good moment, but you also should, like, objectively view things. Like, you need to ask yourself, like, are these, you know, about the cards in your deck, um, would X card uh, have been better as Y card? You know, go into a league maybe with questions that you want answered um, when you're mulling over deck choi building choices. Uh, is this mana base good? Is, you know, should I play a second trop or a second bayou in my bug delver deck um which that decision ultimately comes down mostly to like whether or not you have to play like a more blue heavy counter spell based deck or like a him to truck shell regardless um you know do i want to play or like you know i've been playing a bunch of bug delver and i feel like these are the strengths and weaknesses i want to try grixis delver and see what the strengths and weaknesses are um 
is uh, no rod better than collector oof? You know, you may play a couple leagues with no rod and go, okay, that worked out fine. And then you may want to play a couple leagues with collector oof and then figure out, well, no rod, uh, both cards are good against like the breach deck or whatever, but um, collector oof gets to attack, which is a huge upside, but it dies to sorts of plowshares, which uh, is something they have like four of post board against me. Whereas no rod, they only have three copies of wear tear or something like these are things you want to factor in. Um, so you weigh the pros and cons, right? Like my Karn opponent, uh, like no rod was good against them. Um, and collector roof would have been bad because they, maybe they had dismember or maybe they had an all is dust, uh, that resolved, right? Or if you're looking at something like uh, Collector Oof's ability to attack being relevant versus combo versus like not being as relevant against something like Death and Taxes. And then from there, you would maybe want to factor in um, mana uh, as a limiting agent. So Collector Oof having a color identity could become a liability against a deck like uh, Death and Taxes, Maverick, Agrolome, if you choose to bring it in there, or, you know, some other type of shell that could be putting your mana base under duress. So, you know, like, go. it's fine to go into a league with assumptions, but those assumptions should also be, like, challengeable questions. Um, like, I think, you know, for it's the scientific method. Form a hypothesis, test it, right? It's it's the thing you learned in second grade or whatever. Um, I think X is better than Y, or I think X will be good because of these reasons, and then run it through the ringer. Uh, in terms of, like, mindset when playing leagues, don't overexert yourself. Don't play a bunch of leagues back-to-back-to-back-to-back if it isn't something that comes natural to you. Um there's some days where I'll just fire off a bunch of leagues back to back. And there are some days where I will play two ga- two matches, walk away from my computer for a couple hours, come back, play the last three matches. Right. Um, or like some people have anxiety once they get to four Oh, you can just like let that match sit. The number of times I've like been four Oh in leagues and just gone and done something else and come back and like crush the last round or whatever. It's fairly high. You don't have to just how through these leagues um i know a lot of moto grinders or whatever will put a lot of emphasis on like the rate in which they're playing but um just because someone is playing more than you that doesn't necessarily mean they are getting more out of their playing than you it's about quality not quantity um oliver tomiko has been uh pointing out that he hasn't been playing a lot of leagues uh lately or you know his testing process isn't just like this mindless grinding. And I think people should or can use that as an example of how, um, you know, repetitions aren't like mindless repetitions don't actually mean it. You need to go in with a plan, figure out what you're trying to learn. And then when you approach things from that framework, you're going to maybe stumble across other ideas and, um, 
you know, a card may function differently than you expected. So then you may have to be forced to change your perception of that card. And well, if, you know, you may go in like, I think Dismember is better than uh, Magmatic Sinkhole or whatever. And your perception of that dynamic may change, which may, if you're like going to play Magmatic Sinkhole, then you may have to readdress how you've constructed your creature threat suite, right? You may not be able to play that Hooting Mandrels due to uh, your graveyard being taxed, or um, you may want to cut, I don't know, some other effect, right? There, You'll start to see the correlation between cards and how deck building is mostly just balancing effects. Um, so... Yeah, that that's kind of where I'd start. Um, don't overexert yourself. Go in with questions or hypothesis and directly try to challenge that. Um, there was something else. Oh, be willing to spend money. Uh, it, if you focus way too much on the financial aspect of Moto or like going infinite or staying afloat, it's just going to like... Uh, cause you to spiral into a ball of just like anxiety or whatever and you may see your results slip uh if you focus on just like the process of learning uh, as you learn and get better you're going to see your results be fine and your win rate will be enough to support you um but like ignore the discussions that people have where they're like oh well i was just playing moto and i ground my way into insert x however many dollars or whatever just focus on the process really um in terms of like staying afloat i think that uh if your goal is just to play as much as you can crack your chests open uh, and get play points um and then at a certain point you may care more about selling your chests or whatever but you know just be comfortable with the idea that you may end up throwing a 10 ball at your your computer not a 10 ugh. you may be willing you may have to like pay out of pocket to play a league or two and uh there's nothing wrong with that just try and keep everything in perspective lay cyrus Cormangill asked not asked not all of these are questions a number of these most of these are statements he wanted me to talk about Frank's beard and uh, his voice messages. So uh, my friend Frank has a really big beard. And there was a period where uh, he was working a job where, like, uh, he couldn't, like, reply to messages for a good period of time or whatever. And then he'd, like, reply to everything with a bunch of voice messages instead of typing stuff. Uh, but, yeah. That, that's kind of just it. And anyone who witnessed Frank's voice messages should listen to our podcast, the Cozy Gang podcast, um, which is on Anchor and, you know, Sound, not SoundCloud. We're basically on everything but SoundCloud at this point. So, holla at your boy. Um, Do-do-do-do-do. Dunhovey asked me what my favorite format is. Uh, it's Legacy when Top was legal or something. Um, right now, I'm not playing enough to have a favorite format, but most of the formats uh, seem pretty reasonable at the moment. 
my co-host asked me, uh, would it be interesting to unban Shaman slash Probe slash since he's running top in Legacy? Uh, I think Probe is a miserable card. Uh, and just having um, a constant environment of just perfect information made games not... It took a lot of the skill out of the game, I guess. It like it part of the reason why Grixis Delver was so good wasn't because all of its cards were more powerful, but because like it was just the one of the best decks at manage at leveraging both the man advantage from Deathrite Shaman along with the information you got from Gitaxian Probe. So it opened up windows to plays that you normally wouldn't make in the dark, like probe my opponent see that they kept a one lander and then I'm just going to like force a will their ponder so that I can wasteland them on turn two. That isn't necessarily a play you would just make without having that information. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of top, but not everyone is. I don't know if it would make the format objectively better, but I am a fan of some good old miracles. So, uh, I don't know. Oh, death right. Shaman. I I've ranted on end about how I hate the arbitration of mana and, the bastardization of the color pie and how I'm pretty much a purist when it comes to that. So um, I don't think I can, with a straight face, argue that Astrolabe should not be a legal card within Legacy uh, for reasons of creating too much homogeny and then also argue that Deathrite Shaman uh, should be unbanned. Uh, they functionally do the same thing it, Yes, Deathrite's a mana sink, but whatever. I don't feel like getting into that discussion of Deathrite being a helpful tool for the format and blah, blah, blah. Ain't nobody got time for that. It's fucking obnoxious. Uh, Ether asks, what would make Legacy... Uh, so they preface this by saying that like it seemed I haven't been playing much and um, like me, Lawrence, has not been... have has I haven't been playing much. Uh, and they... We're wondering what would make Legacy slash Magic interesting for me again, assuming it wasn't just Burnout, which it, that's basically what it was. I was playing a lot, uh, and I wasn't really enjoying it. Is there something missing in Legacy? Would unbannings help? Um, right now, I'm kind of burned out, but also my interest in playing Magic as a game is just fairly low. Uh, most of the formats look fine, but I have commented on the cast that, like, watching legacy doesn't particularly interest me at the moment uh i don't find the play patterns of the breach deck um that enjoyable uh i mean it's i just got burned out realistically uh i don't know if anything's missing from legacy i just think that there are some cards that are dominant within the format that could potentially not be as dominant and we would see a much healthier gameplay experience. Um, I don't know if there's anything on the legacy ban list that uh, could potentially come off to actually improve gameplay. Like, there are cards that are banned in legacy that you look at and you're just like, there's no reason for this thing to be banned, like Mind Twist. You don't like necessarily need to have Mind Twist be a card that's banned in Legacy, um, because like the whole thing about discard is that it's effective in the early game and bad in the late game. And without cards like Moxon or like you know 
without a lot of fast mana, the turn, like Mind Twist isn't coming down fast enough to really make a huge impact on the game. Um, I kind of wonder if Oath of Druids... So if it's Druids, two Busto... Oath is a fairly obnoxious thing going on there. Having more Abrupt Decays in Legacies... Like, the card Oath is a bit easier to answer. I, I don't know what Oath of Druids would do to the format. That would maybe be interesting to see for a while, and then maybe that would need to... Who knows? Uh, survival is also another card like that. Um, I'm sure somebody's wondering if I think Restricted List would be good for Legacy. The answer is no. Just straight up no. Uh, I think people who ask that question have not played Vintage, and when deck building turns into busted one-ofs plus the next most broken cards, the gameplay experience ends up being high variance, um, particularly unfun in that regard, and it leads to a format that isn't that healthy. It, like, in a weird way, it leads to homogeny because deck lists just start with, you know, X cards that are good, and um, then you get into, like, specifics. But I'm, I'm, I think uh, restricted lists are so, so bad. Uh, vintage, like, gets away with it, but it's also just, like, like, eternal formats are just places where, like, card design mistakes go to die, and... A lot of the design mistakes uh, aren't actually fun cards, uh, but we've kind of like Stockholm syndromed ourselves into enjoying these game dynamics. And it's like, you know, losing to Storm it does isn't fun. Uh, play, losing to Delver not fun. Like yes, losing isn't fun, but you can play a game and go like, hey, that was an interesting game. But you know. Sometimes you keep a hand that's like fine if it draws a second land and you turn one ponder and your opponent uh, hits you with a turn one daze and then you're like, oh, they have a wasteland and they have a delver and they just like untap wasteland you and you die. And uh, that is not a good or that is not like a technically healthy or like air quote good play dynamic, but that is just within the realm of, or within the tolerance of acceptable that we've arbitrarily set for Legacy. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is up next? I feel like there was something else I wanted to talk about. Um, oh, yes. This thing. I'll get to that in a minute. So, uh, I was discussing with James Sue. Sue? I think it's like Sue really bad at pronouncing like the H into the S. It's been a while since I've actually studied Chinese pronunciations. Um, sorry if I butchered your name, it's James, but I'm pretty sure it's not like James Who's. Like there's a harder H and it's like closer to Who with like an S slid in there, but I'm pretty sure it's more of like a, like a hiss, zoo, but it's not Su, which is like more of a TS sound, like TSU. Um, anyway, uh, so James has been playing some Rug Delver. He's a big fan of Delver decks. Um, and we were discussing the merits of Winter Orb versus Sylvan Library. I stated that I dislike Winter Orb, and I think you should cut it with Library. He wasn't the biggest fan of that. 
So, um, anyone who's like newer in Legacy, uh, even the older stalwarts will remember the period where Rug Delver would very frequently run Winter Orb. It even got to the point where players like Jonathan Alexander uh, started cutting car- cutting copies of Tarmogoyf to play multiple Winter Orbs main, uh, with the idea that you were converting like the aggressive Delver deck into more of a control deck that was based around mana denial. So the construction was eight one-drop threats, two-ish Goyfs, and then like two Winter Orbs. And you were just, your plan was just to not let your opponent play magic. Um, that game plan doesn't really exist within the modern day, uh, especially with James's list, which is 19 lands, eight cantrips, two spell pierce, one spell snare, four stifle, one chain lightning, four lightning bolt, four days, uh, four delver, one hex drinker, three goif, one hooting mandrels, one brazen bar, one true name, two oko, four force of will. So one of the hallmarks of these winter orb delver shells is how mana efficient they were, and that's where Winterworm shines. It allows you to leverage your your mana efficiency and punish your opponents for being mana efficient or mana inefficient, which in Legacy is literally the difference between one and two or one and three mana. Under Winterworm, a card like Days becomes extremely powerful, Spell Pierce becomes extremely powerful, etc. Um, and that isn't the case here when. Like, when you need to be tapping low for Tarmogoyf and you have Winter Orb, that isn't the best spot. When Oko's one of your best threats, like, you're you're creating a tension within your deck of your threats not actually being more efficient than your opponent's. And when you're playing Stifle and Spell Pierce and uh, Daze, the density of cards that don't scale well, are it, it starts to get pretty high. So, like, part of the Gwentorb game plan was, you know, getting ahead on board very early to force your opponent into tapping low, or, like, having your opponent frantically scramble to address a nimble mongoose that had hit the table, and then they would tap low, you'd maybe start a counter war or something arbitrary, like Spell Pierce your cantrip or whatever, and then you'd untap Winterorb them, and then... You know, you'd have your no lands up, but you'd have days, which was a free time walk. And then the next turn, you'd have a spell pierce up, or you may have your stifle, right? Wonder Orb was this card that facilitated your situational cards being good. And then, like, even if your opponent killed your Delver, you could just play another Delver for one mana, or you'd, like, play another one-drop threat. So the card's effectiveness is very conditional based on your deck building, Additionally, part of the like Winter Orb's uh, playability was how good it was against control decks because it often forced players to choose what colors they would have access to and would commonly limit players to having access to one white source or one red source or like just one of non-blue sources, right? But with Astrolabe being a factor, you end up in a position where uh, your opponent can play through Winter Orb's color-restricting effects uh, significantly better. So when your opponent can cast Abrupt Decay off of Island Island or, you know, Island Forest or something of that nature, Winter Orb starts to be a double-edged sword, uh, 
especially when you factor in trying to cast three drops like True Name and Oko. Sylvan Library, by comparison, um, just allows you to create a very early game advantage and snowball. So I mentioned that like a chunk of cards in these Delver shells tend to scale poorly into the late game, but you can end up in a lot of positions where you get to leverage these effects. You know, you may find Wasteland uh, to, like, Wasteland opponent's Fetchland that they've been sandbagging and then stifle it. Or you may find a Wasteland and a Spell Pierce off your Sylvan Library. And then you can Wasteland an opponent's Fetchland in response to a spell. Uh, and then in response to them cracking their Fetch, you can Spell Pierce that. So it gives you more tools to utilize and facilitate your momentum. Um, cantrips are generally tempo negative, so having like a... Instead of like spending a bunch of turns casting Ponder and the like, having just simply a Sylvan Library that you can throw on the table and just have constantly rolling uh, gives you a lot of power to work with. Um, especially in this day and age where you're playing higher power cards. So you have your... Brazen Borrower, your true names, your Okos, and being able to, like, Sylvan Library almost ensures you're going to find powerful cards plus the lands to cast them uh, in ways that, like, Ponder and Brainstorm will do, but at a much slower rate and a, like, you the investment over time mana wise will add up higher than sylvan library um additionally you're not the only deck playing higher power cards a lot of deck shells are leaning towards card quality being more important than card quantity um so if you like one of the things that makes delver decks great is you can very much leverage card quality very well by creating an environment where your opponent has to play into certain effects you know soft permission and stifle are great when you're actively attacking with delver and the like um so being able to find your effects and force your opponent to play into them uh, gives you a lot to work with and um you know with people leaning in on cards like oko or these people's game plans are being focused around uh, certain effects. You can just really get under them. Uh, like, just tear them apart with, like, Pyroblast or, like, Veil of Summer. So that's why I like Library. It just gives you a steady flow of gas to bury your opponent. And these control decks often can't keep up uh, with the rate at which you're seeing cards for just a two-mana investment. On top of that, Sylvan Library is also, or historically has been, a reasonable card to bring in against combo shells and mid-range decks. Because something like Maverick, if you fight them on a one-for-one axis, or you may be, or you're most definitely forced to keep in Force Will against a deck like Maverick. So if you Force Will Night the Reliquary, you need to be able to recoup uh, and keep pushing from there um against the storm decks having that onboard library allows you to just again find you know the pressure plus disruption that you've been looking for and just go from there so that is why i like some library over winter orb i think winter orb is just um 
very situationally good and the times where it seems good it seems really good but I think it's mostly just a nostalgia factor from yesteryear and uh, the days of John Alexander uh, actively writing stuff on his blog Um, Weekly Wars I think it's called very good if you like legacy content Um, he delves into theory and the like and it's very uh, very enjoyable um he some of the theory says or like kind of dives into um has been really interesting to me uh like the concept of uh just like the term sideboard card not necessarily mattering because like you can look at a card like ancient grudge and most people would tell you, oh yeah, that's a sideboard card, but there are formats where playing an Ancient Grudge main deck was defensible, or like you look at Vintage, where in a main deck Ancient Grudge or like a Pyroblast, totally defensible. So looking at an effect and going, oh yes, this is only good enough to play in the sideboard, or this is a main deck card, is ultimately limiting your worldview um, and... You should just view a card as a card and see its range and then on a deck-by-deck basis try and figure out if you want it in your main or your sideboard uh, based on that analysis. Uh, What else do we have here? Oh, I have an announcement. Uh, So Steve and I are going to kind of put the podcast on hiatus uh, for starting in March. Um, Legacy has been kind of stale. Neither of us is playing Magic to the degree that we used to. Uh, so with the format not shifting and us honestly losing interest in the game as a whole to enough of a degree, it's harder to put out the podcast um, and actually keep you know, not retread things, uh, from week to week. Um, so from here we are, we'll maybe put out like an episode a month or something of that nature. We don't know yet. It's going to be sporadic. I'm not going to promise anything. Uh, you may get one episode a month. You may get two, you may get zero. We'll see. Um, it's not a like complete goodbye, probably, maybe. Again, not promising anything. We may never put out another episode again. Who knows? But if you are interested in... If you're here and you listen to me uh, talk to myself for, at this point, I don't know, an hour and a half. We'll see how much of this gets edited out. Uh, hashtag sorry, Liz. Um, then you are a fan of Legacy Podcast. So... Uh, listen to the Dead Format podcast with Ian and Tom. Uh, Everyday Eternal with Julian Knob and uh, Eric Landon. Maybe I don't. I don't know. They're a great podcast. Everyday Eternal is actually one of the podcasts that got me into the Legacy Magic: The Gathering, or well, helped my development. I was already entrenched in the form. Uh. The ELO Punters podcast is run by three very smart, thin, and handsome individuals. And uh, you should check it out. And I've heard the Eternal Glory podcast 
maybe coming back in some form. So that's where I would go if I were you and I wanted to check out the Legacy Magic the Gatherings uh, listenings. You know, that's a, that's a thing you should uh, consider. Oh, um, I forgot to mention here, uh, going back to James's thing, our buddy Jatron pointed out that he um, is not sure about Oko and these stifle lists, and he feels like these lists went 18 lands. Uh, 18 lands is mo- whether or not you get to play 18 lands is mostly dependent on your threat base. If you have the high density of one drop threats, then yeah, sure, you can get away with 18 lands. If you don't, uh, you need to compensate with 19 lands. Uh, as James, I agree with James's assertion that 18.5 lands would be perfect, but you can't really do that unless you play a lonely sandbar, um, which I don't think you really want to do. You'd have to play it in a cantrip slot, so you'd like cut whatever the 19th land is for a lonely sandbar. Uh, maybe that's fine. Maybe it's fine. Lonely Sandbar without a Life from Alone or like a Renin 6 is really an underwhelming effect. Uh, so the fact that you're cutting a land to, or a different land to put this land that's a spell in your deck, and then um, on top of that, you would need to play another card to facilitate it actually being. A really game-impacting effect is not super interesting to me. Uh, regarding Oko and Stifle, I yeah, that's a weird one. Um, Oko, the Oko builds of Rug Delver are more mid-rangey shells usually, um, because like Stifle as a card is very good at creating small windows that you can exploit. But it's not good at facilitating mid-ranger games where your opponent gets to play magic. Uh, I think Oko is just objectively a powerful enough card uh, that you can just toss it in and you'll be fine. So I don't... I think that part of Jay's question is less relevant. But um, I think the bigger question that's begging to be asked is whether or not Stifle is a playable effect when you're not playing like eight one drop threats and uh, facilitating more of the slow to the ground game plan. Uh, it's not something that I would lean in on, to be honest, because of just the natural decay of that card as the game goes on. But there are matchups where it is pretty high value. Um, I think if I was to play Stifles, I would maybe look into some sort of like Thought Scour plus uh, Hooting Mandrel's list. Uh, and play like four Goyf, four Delver, maybe two, it, two, two-ish Thought Scour, and then like two-ish Hooting Mandrel or something like that. And um, maybe two Oko is, you know, the fact that the card's just really powerful. And just go from there. Uh because that seems a little more coherent to me. But again, there are going to be issues caused by that threat suite. But Thought Scour giving you something to do with your mana when you're holding up Stifle is... But yeah, uh, that has been the Lawrence rambles to himself uh, somewhat coherently 
uh, episode. And um, hopefully that wasn't too painful because kind of was struggling in the beginning. But uh, yeah, uh, bye.